Hey, I'm back. <laughs> I took a few weeks off because my life has been going through some transitions. I've been dealing with an interesting and somewhat shamey health issue, which I hope to talk about in a future episode once it's actually been figured out. And I did a really intense and fascinating trip through Israel and Palestine, which I am definitely going to do a couple of episodes about in the near future. And I finally, after over two and a half years of travel, decided it was time to move back to Canada. So I am now living in Toronto. I have been here for one week. The day I arrived, there was the most massive snowfall that has happened in November in some 70 years, apparently. So I have been readjusting to non-nomadic life, and I am now ready to get back on the podcasting wagon, and I have a bunch of really interesting topics that I am excited to share with you. Getting Discomfortable with Callouts a few months ago, as I have mentioned before, I was at a symposium on the problem of shame put on by the Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. The keynote speaker was one of my favorite shame gurus, Brene Brown, who I've never actually met, as well as other great psychologists and shame thinkers like Harriet Lerner. One of the speakers, and I mentioned this in a previous episode, did a whole presentation on shame in the LGBTQ plus community. I wanted to talk about something interesting that happened during his lecture. He was talking about how much overwhelming shame there still is in society for anyone who doesn't conform with heteronormative culture. And in the middle of his presentation, a man who was on the complete other side of the conference room from me, and this, this was a big space, there had to be a couple hundred people there, he stood up and yelled in front of everyone, I am a gay man, and there are people over here who aren't even paying attention. They are on their phones. And there was kind of a stunned silence. The speaker didn't know what to say. And I, I couldn't hear it, but it was clear that somebody on the other side of the room was rebutting what this man had just said. And then he chimed in saying, I don't care if you're busy. If you have to do work, go out of the room. It's disrespectful. So this man was clearly very upset. And the speaker was just sort of quiet for a minute and then said, okay, I'm going to carry on with my presentation now. And we just went on as if nothing had happened. Later on in the symposium, one of the organizers said that they wanted to say a few words about what had happened. And they basically said, you know, we appreciate this gentleman for bringing it to our attention that some people weren't paying attention, but we also appreciate that everyone here is a working professional, and if you need to answer some emails or, or take notes or something, that, that's fine. Basically, he just sort of placated everyone, and then the symposium continued. But in my mind, it was such a missed opportunity, because what we all witnessed in that moment was, of course, a reaction to shame itself. And I thought it was ironic that this great example of shame should pop up in a symposium called The Problem with Shame, and nobody even noted that it was shame, or talked about why it had happened, or how it could have been dealt with in other ways. 
I so longed to have been on stage so that I could have talked about it. But of course, I wasn't invited to speak on this symposium on shame because nobody knows who I am yet. This is what I assume had happened. And as a gay man, I think I have a pretty good insight into what the gentleman who stood up and started yelling had experienced. Because I was at one of the tables at the very front, really close to the speaker, because I was a keener, I got there early, I wanted to be able to make eye contact with Brene Brown, which I did. And there was another table that was just to my left, and there was a guy on his computer at that table. And every now and then I looked over and I wondered, is that guy taking notes? Is he paying attention or is he just surfing the internet? So I could see how you could interpret people being on their phones or being on a computer as them not paying attention. I didn't take it personally, however, because when I noticed him, it it wasn't talking about me personally. However, during the talk about shame in the LGBTQ plus community, it was very personal. It felt like it was talking about me directly. And I could imagine how if I had have looked over and seen that guy kind of smiling at his computer, seemingly not paying attention or kind of disregarding the whole talk, I probably would have felt shame. I would have felt like, wow, my whole existence, my whole struggle is just a joke to this guy, which would have been really indignifying for me. It would have made me feel like I didn't belong with him, that he was going to reject me and judge me and scorn me and forget me. And, And those are the feelings that stimulate shame. So that is almost certainly exactly what happened with the gentleman who stood up. He was listening to this really kind of heartbreaking talk about how much shame there is still in the LGBTQ community. And then he looks over and the table right next to him doesn't seem to care at all. They don't seem to respect him or understand his pain. And that puts him into shame. But then, instead of just sitting in that shame, he pushes the shame away, saying, this isn't fair. I shouldn't have to feel shame about this. And this reaction, this pushing the unpleasant feeling of shame away, sent him almost certainly into his threat response. And our threat response has a handful of basic built-in reactions. There's your freeze response where you literally just sort of seize up and your brain stops functioning and you just sort of hope that if you stay still, the threat will pass. Then there's the withdrawal response, which is flight, which is to literally just run away from the threat and never return. And then there is a kind of submission reaction or people-pleasing, which is also known as attack self. This is when you blame yourself for what is happening, for the shame, and you try to kind of grovel and people-please to win your place back into the group. Another reaction is to go into denial or rebellion, where you pretend like you aren't feeling shame at all. In fact, this rebellion response can sometimes force you to do the exact thing that you're feeling shame about just to try to prove that you're not feeling shame, that you aren't controlled by other people's judgments. And finally, there is the fight response or attack. This can often lead to real physical violence, but more often than not, as humans, we embody our fight reflex by going into a kind of shame back strategy, where we try to take the shame that we don't think we should have to feel and push it back on either the people that we perceive as having caused our shame or whoever else is around 
It's a kind of blame reaction. And that is exactly the strategy that this gentleman who stood up and started yelling went into. You know, we often have a kind of habituated reaction to our threat response. We have one direction that we tend to go in more than others. So maybe for this guy, he's naturally used to going into his attack response, into shame back. Or maybe it just seemed like the most logical thing to do in this case. But at any rate, he took the shame that he was feeling, he gathered up the courage to stand up in front of everyone, all of these professional strangers, which is quite impressive because I don't think I would have had the nerve to do this, and he started attacking them, he started blaming them, he started publicly shaming the table next to him for this behavior that he found so personally shaming. And this is just such a classic shame response, to perpetuate the shame by shaming someone else. And those people who then feel shamed obviously went into a defense mode of their own and started saying, I I mean, I don't know what they said, but I assume they were like, we have work to do. We're busy. We are paying attention. We're taking notes. Or I had to take a call. Something like that. And that prompted him to then react by telling them to take their work outside, that it was disrespectful. It basically created one of those classic emotional blow-ups where everyone gets emotionally triggered, everyone goes into their fight-or-flight threat response, and nobody actually accomplishes any meaningful connection or change. It kind of illustrates the main problem with shaming someone, is that it just creates more shame. It creates this cycle of reactivity in which one person shames another, and then they shame someone else, and then that person shames someone else, and then the shame comes back around to whoever started it. Only like an hour before this blow-up happened, Brene Brown had given her keynote in which she specifically said there is no place for shame in social justice work. I'm assuming that in the mind of the man who stood up, the people at the next table were homophobes who were basically disinterested in this whole lecture. And I think he assumed that most people in the room would be on his side, especially the speaker who was basically talking about what he perceived as this exact issue, people being homophobic and therefore shaming gay people. So he he stood up kind of trying to shine a light on what he saw as the problem. But in the process, he publicly shamed them, which didn't help them to see any error in their ways. It just made them defensive. They went into their own threat response, and it created a kind of ugly, emotionally triggered back and forth. So if the gentleman who stood up had have really listened to Brene when she said there's no room for shame in social justice work, he would have had to have come up with some different strategies. So the the first thing that would have to happen is that he would have to notice that he was in shame. Wow, I'm looking at these people, and the fact that they're not wrapped with attention at this lecture about LGBTQ shame is making me feel shame, because I'm being triggered in a way that I have often been triggered, growing up feeling like nobody here in Texas cares about my plight, understands what it's like, or appreciates that it's okay to even be gay. 
all of these horrible shame triggers that have been conditioned into him in his childhood and throughout his life were being triggered by the people at the next table. But it's incumbent upon us to recognize when we are in shame and to recognize when we are being triggered so that we can have some self-awareness and say, okay, I'm in shame. I now need to be very careful about how I react or I'm in danger of going into fight or flight and I'm in danger of creating a cycle of reactivity. So just noticing when you're in shame and understanding your triggers is an extremely important first step. Because if you don't know that you're in shame, you will slide into your threat response without even realizing that you're not using your prefrontal cortex anymore. You know, our threat response comes from the oldest parts of our brain, our limbic system and our amygdala. These are the parts of our brain and the patterned instinctual threat reactions that we share with mammals, even all the way down to lizards. We share basically the same threat reactions as lizards. And when we go into that part of our brain, it basically shuts off our neocortex, which is the most modern and human part of the brain, because it wants to conserve energy, it wants to create quick action, so it doesn't need you sitting there thinking, oh, is this tiger really going to eat me? Like, is this even a real tiger? Like, what is reality? No, our brain doesn't want us to react that way because we're more likely to die. Better safe to assume that we are in a real life-threatening situation than not. The problem is that our brain reacts to shame as if it were a real life-threatening situation when it no longer is. Back when we were hunter-gatherers who lived in a small tribe of 150 people, that was true. Feeling shame was a sign that we were in danger of being disrespected, of being forgotten, of being judged, of being rejected. So it was a very important instinctual reaction for us to try to do whatever we could to get back into the good graces of our group so that we wouldn't be excommunicated where we would surely die. But now, in the modern world, you are very unlikely to die simply because of social rejection. So shame is still tied to this feeling that we really are facing a life or death situation, but we aren't. That's why it's so important to memorize what it feels like when you go into fight or flight. You can really tell because your heart will start pounding, your face will probably get flushed, your throat will get all dry, you'll get a little bit immobilized and foggy because your neocortex has just gone offline. And you might even start to cry. Your, your eyes will water. These are all just natural reactions to a threat. And when you notice that you are in your threat response, you can stop and say, okay, why am I in my threat response? Am I in clear and immediate danger? If not, then almost certainly your threat response has been triggered by shame. That gives you an opportunity to be like, okay, what triggered the shame? Is it even accurate that I am being shamed or disrespected in the way that I'm perceiving? Like, are the people at the next table on their phones because they're actually homophobic? Do I know that for sure? Or maybe they're just doing some work. That's the kind of curiosity you can have when you notice that you're in your threat response and that your threat response was triggered by shame. It's important to notice when your neocortex is not functioning properly because it allows you to say, okay, I should not be making any important decisions right now because my rational faculties are kind of offline or obscured 
Often when people feel shame, they complain about being in a kind of fog, a kind of freeze state. And that's essentially because their brain isn't functioning normally. They've got these chemicals and these instinctual reactions happening that are designed to basically override their system. It's a kind of emergency martial law. And the only way that you can deal with it is to be aware of it, to notice that it's happening, and to basically stop yourself from doing anything when you are in that state. And when you understand that there are just a handful of reactions programmed into your threat response, you can pretty easily see where you're being tugged. You can feel the urge to get angry at someone, to stand up and yell at them and publicly shame them. So then you know, okay, I'm being directed into my attack reflex for some reason. But you can probably also feel that there are other strategies bubbling inside of you, like the urge to just get up and storm out and never come back because that stupid conference invited stupid homophobes. Or maybe you start attacking yourself. You go into a kind of you know, what was I expecting coming to Texas? Of course, people aren't going to accept me here. This place, well, I mean, (laughs) I guess that kind of gets back into attack other again. But nonetheless, my point is that there are a bunch of different strategic reactions built right into your threat response. And if you really just stop and pay attention, you can kind of feel them all. And you're probably being tugged in one direction. But when that direction doesn't pan out, you will immediately get tugged in another direction. Like if you freeze and the threat doesn't seem to pass, then you will immediately go into withdrawal. And then from withdrawal, you might go into attacking yourself or blaming yourself for the whole situation. Or if you can convince yourself that it wasn't your fault, you might then go into attack other and start ruminating on how you should have said this or you should have punched them. It's really fascinating. It's like your brain has been taken over and you are being forced into a very limited menu of options for how you can react. And this is simply because your brain has literally been overridden by a kind of built-in emergency program designed to keep you alive. An outdated emergency program, I might add. So if this gentleman who stood up and started speaking had have stopped, noticed that he was triggered, realized that the trigger had come from shame, recognized that it was a classic response, of course he was feeling shame, these people didn't seem to be respecting or paying attention to an issue that was deeply close to his heart, that was literally all about his life, then it would give him a kind of distance from his threat response reaction. And he would have a little bit more choice because he was aware of what was happening. And he could see his pattern reactions kind of pushing him towards attacking these people. And he could have said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that as much as I want to. I'm going to take some time. Maybe I'm going to go for a quick breather. I'm going to let my threat response die down. And then once my neocortex comes back online, I can decide what the most useful reaction would actually be, the reaction that actually stays inside of my values and integrity. And it might have been to just go over to that table during the break and say, hey, I just wanted to say that 
during that last lecture, while you were on your phones, I was telling myself this story that you weren't paying attention, that you didn't think it was a very interesting talk. And, uh, you know, I got kind of shamed by it because I am gay. And, and to me, this is such an important issue. And I just wanted to check with you and see, you know, was I imagining that? How did that lecture land for you? And then people might have said like, oh, no, I was, I was taking notes or, oh, yeah, sorry, man, I, I got distracted. I, you know, I'm just slammed with work right now. Or maybe they would have said, yeah, you know, I thought that talk was bullshit for these reasons. But at least then they could have had a kind of calm, rational exchange. And he would have felt a lot better by simply communicating how their behavior had affected him. This is what I discovered when I did that episode about clarity. Just by honestly communicating how I was affected, I feel so much better. I don't even necessarily need that person to change or even apologize, though both of those reactions do feel amazing. But just by being honest and authentic, it helps me to move on. So he could have had that kind of exchange where he was honest, they were honest, they had a kind of connection even if they didn't agree, and then they could move on. Or he might have discovered after taking a pause that it was none of his business what they thought about that talk, that it didn't have anything to do with him, and that it wasn't his place to be judging them or deciding how they should or shouldn't react. And that is probably the most healthy reaction, to create a boundary and say, that is those people, and this is me, and I worry about me. And as long as their behavior isn't, like, directly interfering with my life, I respect that they have to make their own decisions and that they have to choose their own actions. And that's life. You know, we're all different individual people who have the autonomy and freedom to be who we want to be. That's how it is. And understanding that and respecting that is healthy. We can't force everyone to care about what's important to us. And the sooner we create that boundary, the happier, healthier, and less shamey we will feel. So I wish one of the speakers had have brought up this situation and talked through exactly what had probably taken place and basically given everyone a kind of real-time demonstration of how shame works, how it connects to our threat response, and what the alternatives are so that you don't just enact a pattern and cycle of reactivity. However, I will note that in order to bring this up on stage, you would have to be very delicate because it could very easily come across as public shaming yet again. The gentleman who stood up might feel like he was now being publicly shamed for using shame <laughs> at a shame symposium. But I'm sure there is a delicate way in which this could have been effectively communicated. And, and of course, it would have been based in empathy. It probably would have been starting off by empathizing with his reaction, by completely understanding where he was coming from, and owning his reaction as something that we would totally do ourselves. But then from there, we could talk about how we have other options, other possibilities that we could work with in a way that was very gentle and kind of kept the sense of equality as strong as possible throughout. The more you can focus your criticism on yourself by joining with the person you're criticizing, the less it will be heard as shaming. 
basically, I'm just like you. I totally react the way you just reacted. But at other situations, I have been able to react slightly differently. And I would like to talk through what those different alternative reactions are because, you know, they really helped me. And I think they could help all of us. Something like that would have been a great way to start the conversation without, you know, hopefully shaming the man who stood up. So it was pretty fascinating, and I really wondered how many people in this room full of hundreds of psychologists and various other shame professionals even noted that that shame was happening, because none of the speakers talked about it, and though one of the organizers mentioned it, they never named it as shame, even though, you know, we had speakers like Brene Brown that day saying, let's talk about shame, let's say the word shame, let's name it. No one named that situation as shame. Essentially, what this gentleman had engaged in is what's often called a call-out. This is when you basically publicly shame someone for doing something that you perceive as wrong. Call-out culture is deeply tied with what is known as cancel culture, which is a belief that when someone does something wrong, they should be rejected and excluded and publicly punished and shamed. This is shame incarnate, basically, to say that someone's mistakes should be broadcast as widely as possible, and then as a punishment, they should be completely rejected and given no chance for redemption. It's like codifying shame. Shame is deeply tied to the belief that you are your mistakes, that there is no way to change or grow or learn or redeem yourself. And therefore, if the world finds out about your truth, about your mistakes, they will reject you and never allow you a second chance and you will die sad and alone. And cancel culture and call-out culture work hand-in-hand to prove this to be true, at least for the people who subscribe to these kinds of cultures. And what's so sad about call-out culture and cancel culture, that it is almost certainly born from the people who are enacting its own shame. They feel the shame that says there's something that is potentially wrong with them, or there could be some mistake that would be so fatal that they would not deserve to be loved ever again. And they believe their own shame to such a degree that they enact it on other people. When really, if they had a different strategy that was more empathetic, that had more of a growth mindset, not only could they help other people, but they could actually heal their own shame. Call-out culture can be effective in certain cases. If you are calling out a corporation for some kind of nefarious activities, that's fine. Call out non-human entities all you want. I have no problem with that. And sometimes you may want to call out some famous person or some inaccessible figure. Like, maybe you want to call out Donald Trump. That's understandable because you don't have access to Donald Trump. You may not have very many other alternatives to express what you think Donald Trump could do better. 
But if you have access to someone, if you have an ability to talk to them one-on-one or in a small group, I would highly recommend that you reconsider approaching them through a call-out because you will almost certainly have a much better opportunity at affecting change and creating real connection if you approach them personally with your concerns. Not only will that bring you a lot of relief, but it will offer them an opportunity to explain where they're coming from. It will allow them to see you, and it will allow you to see them. And if you can maintain that kind of confrontation without shame or without going into your threat response, you will have a much wider menu of possibilities for how exactly to improve the situation. 